0: By me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open the Word of God together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful, grateful so pleased that we have certain truth, absolute truth, eternal truth, never-changing truth in your Word, that it is your Word that has enlightened us to the truth of the Gospel, and it is through your Word, as our Lord prayed, that we are sanctified. We are sanctified by your truth, thy Word is truth. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue our study, that we're always mindful of the fact that it is through your word, it's through the teaching, through the study, through learning, application of your word, that God the Holy Spirit uses your word as his tool to uh, challenge us, to transform us, to renew us, and to constantly direct our lives in the direction of manifesting the character of the Lord Jesus Christ to those around us. We are to learn your word that we may learn to think according to reality as you have created it. And that there are many philosophies and religions that that have reconstructed reality as they suppress truth and unrighteousness. And that as they do that, they they seek to elevate themselves, elevate man. But all they do is live more and more in a framework of fantasy and irrationalism. Help us to think clearly about our own thinking, that we may transform it into the thinking that glorifies you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. And this is one of those chapters that talks about uh, taxes, political implications of economics in terms of government. One of the central passages, there's like three central passages in the New Testament that are related to politics and government. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about uh, social issues and they are not to be restricted to what is said within the four walls of a church that is a, becoming more and more of a common interpretation by the progressive and liberal left in this country that is inherently... Uh, in opposition to the truth of God's Word. And they w- wish to restrict the First Amendment. Maybe you haven't noticed this, but they think, they say, well, you have the freedom to believe and practice whatever you want to on Sunday morning. Just don't bring it into the marketplace of ideas. And unfortunately, a lot of believers have not done that. They have been subjected And forced, and they have allowed themselves to be forced into a secular mold by secular companies for at least 50 years. And now it's too late. You start trying to go against that now, you're going to lose your job. Nobody's going to listen to you. You know, Christians have, uh, Uh, given up territory, intellectual territory in this country because they bought into the same lie that there was this division between the secular and that which was sanctified. And ultimately, there's only one creation. God, God did not create two. Now, there's a recognition that we'll see in this passage that there are different spheres of authority, but that's different. They're not different spheres of reality. So what is ethical, spiritual, and true on Sunday morning is ethical, spiritual, and true on Monday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday at lunch, Thursday when you're relaxing after work, and on Friday night when you're celebrating the end of the week. It's the same truth. But that's not what a secular society wants wants us to understand so as believers we have to learn to think biblically about politics actually the word politics comes from a greek word the word for city polis which relates to how people in the the small society that makes up uh, a city or a certain location are to conduct themselves ethically so if ethics is at the root of politics then the only place where you can get accurate ethical teaching is from God who created ethics. And so ethics that are not biblical are not ethical. They are not eternal. They are just based on on relativism. So in this chapter, we get into an interesting interesting scenario, an interesting situation. I think it's helpful to go back and understand the context just a little bit. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and he has been proclaimed to be king by the, his followers, by the multitudes who have come into Jerusalem to celebrate a Passover. Uh, hundreds of thousands in fact uh, by the end of the week there will be several million one or two million that have come into Jerusalem according to Josephus to celebrate celebrate Passover and about a week before Jesus entered in riding in a, in a donkey uh, in fulfillment of messianic prophecy uh, from Zechariah chapter 9 uh, that the king would come uh, lowly sitting on a donkey that's quoted in Matthew 21 5 And so, he comes in and the multitudes recognize this And singing from Psalm 118. They're singing Hosanna to the Son of David using a Messianic title, a recognition that he's Messiah. Now, these are not going to be the same people in this crowd that are calling for Jesus to be crucified by by the end of the week. There's a different group. Most of these would be made up of the multitude that followed Jesus from from Joshua. Others that... uh, Join them as he enters into Jerusalem. So there is a political overtone to what begins. He is making a statement that he is uh, the king of the promised kingdom, he's the son of David. In fulfillment of that, he cleanses the temple, demonstrating that he is God because he calls it his house. And he recognizes that he has the right to cleanse it, and he cleanses and he heals, and uh, this, of course, puts him afoul of the religious leaders. And then we have seen that, as they challenge and questioned his authority in verses 23 to 27, uh, Jesus didn't answer them overtly, but he answered them through these three consecutive par- parables. Uh, And in each of those, we saw that they developed a more subtle answer to that question. Jesus is being extremely uh, sophisticated in the way he's answering these questions. He doesn't want to create a situation where they're going to grab him or stone him or anything like that prematurely. Everything's got to work according to God's timetable. And so he is. Um, he uses a lot of their own techniques: the question-answer dialogue. I've talked about that in the past uh, few lessons. And so he, they ask him a question. He says, "Well, I'll answer your question if you'll answer my question." He asked him uh, about the nature of the baptism of John: is it from heaven or not? And they won't answer it because, however they answer it. They're going to get in trouble. And, and it's interesting in terms of where we're going to go this morning. The Pharisees try to trap him with a similar kind of question in our passage this morning. They weren't sophisticated enough to avoid his trap, but he's sophisticated enough to avoid their trap. Each of these parables uh, also involves a father, a son, and the rejection of the father's authority, and each of these three parables is addressed to the unsaved, non-believing religious leaders, not the multitude. He is confronting them with his authority, and he is condemning them because of their, their failures and announcing that judgment will come upon them. And each, each of these parables builds the case for God's rejection of the religious leaders as they have rejected his Messiah. Now that takes us up through where we ended last time with the third parable, the parable dealing with this wedding feast in the first 14 verses of chapter 22. At the end of which, and the point of that whole parable, is that you have to have the right clothes on to be at the wedding feast. And it's a picture of the righteousness that we receive when we trust in Christ as Savior. And there's uh, one man who shows up at the uh, wedding feast without the right garments on. He is removed. The king says, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All of that is a reference to judgment in first uh, torments. And then eventually into the into the lake of fire. We'll get to a more detailed study of outer darkness when we get to the more challenging passage when we get into Matthew chapter twenty-five and the parable of the talents and its parallel, the parable of the minas in in Luke nineteen. Um, so we shift gears now. They recognize that. Um, that Jesus is is uh, challenging them and so they go off and they begin to plot and so the next section going down through the rest of this chapter uh revolves around three questions first they ask him if it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar that's Matthew 22:15 to 22 then they will be uh, marvel at his answer and they leave him and they go their way have to regroup again before they come back and then um, the Sadducees come and they ask him a rather convoluted question uh, about a woman who has seven husbands each of whom dies and then is replaced by another one and whose wife will she be in the resurrection that's Matthew 22 23-33 and at the conclusion of that, uh, the multitudes are astonished at his teaching. And then third, uh, he says, teacher, what is, uh, he's asked by one uh, scribe, uh, what are, a uh, lawyer, scribe, what's the uh, greatest commandment of the law, Matthew 22, 34 to 40. And so Jesus answers that, and there's there's no answer to that, and then Jesus is going to counter them with a question that they can't answer, and he asks them, "Whose son then is the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is the Christ?" And that's Matthew twenty-two forty-one to forty-six, and this sort of concludes this confrontational examination of Jesus as the Messiah by the religious leaders, and then Matthew twenty-three. Sets up these woes to the scribes and the Pharisees as Jesus pronounces a judgment upon them and upon Israel, which will conclude with a clear statement that that uh, there, there there's going to be judgment on Jerusalem. And then, and Jerusalem will be destroyed, and then Matthew 24 comes up and the, the disciples say, well, what then will be the signs of your coming? And then we get into prophecy. 24 and 25 deal with prophecy before we get to the crucifixion, and that ought to take us at least six months to get through all of that. <laughs> Probably not quite that long, but maybe. Okay, so they come up and they ask, uh, they ask these, these uh, questions, this beginning of these uh, groups of three, and um, what we'll see in each of them is that they're concerned with a cr- critical question about, about politics, about who's in authority, about what right does an empire have to tax its citizens or some other area related to theology or et- ethics. And in his answers, Jesus has to be cautious because if he goes one way or the other, he, can, he could uh, offend one group or another and maybe even somehow exacerbate a situation that would cause them to take him to trial a little early. So his answers are, are quite enlightening. And we're told by Matthew that the first question is designed, it's a setup, it's a trap, And we're told that the third one is also a test, and the second one is answered in such a, or is asked uh, out of such a a, a framework of uh, cynicism that that it sort of goes without saying that that's also uh, also a trap because the Pharisees, I mean the Sadducees, are asking about what happens in the resurrection, and they don't even believe in the resurrection. So uh, it just shows where, where their mind is that all of these are designed to somehow put Jesus in, in a spot. So in Matthew 22, 22, 15, we're told that the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And the language here is kind of interesting because they, they, they're setting up a, a, a secret plot. They're, they um, were told they, that they went and they plotted against him. And actually that word plotted reflects two different Greek words in the original that combine together and the best way to express it in English is, is a simplified way of just saying they plotted or they conspired uh, against him. They use the main verb, islambano, in a... Um, Active indicative that they actively received something. And then the accusative of, of a plot. So it tells us, the Greek indicates that somebody comes to them with an idea of how we can trap Jesus. So it's, in, in in the English it sounds like they conspired together and sort of self-generated this idea. But the idea in the Greek is that they received a plot. So that indicates that someone may have come to them with this with this idea of how they might uh, entangle him. And this is the word we see on the bottom right. It's the word uh, pagaduo, which means to entangle somebody, to get them all wrapped up in an argument, because we're talking about uh, entangling him in his talk or literally in his words. And I think all of us have had situations where we put ourselves in a trap by something that we've said, now, there's a warning in James chapter 3 about those who are teachers that they don't uh, entangle themselves in their own words and get involved with sins of the tongue. So this is the idea here is they want to trap Jesus. They want to set a trap and have him walk into it and um, and get, get him in trouble. This is the idea of a conspiracy. Now, the the a plot is defined as a secret plan to achieve some end or purpose that is usually underhanded or illegal. That's according to the Oxford English Dictionary. What's interesting is that's almost word for word the definition that that they give for conspiracy. Uh, Conspiracy is a secret plan or agreement to carry out an illegal or harmful act, especially with political motivation. Some of you who are more cynical may say, well, that's what a political convention is. (laughs) And you may be right. But they have gone somewhere away from Jesus, somewhere in the temple precinct where they have a room where they can gather together and figure out some way because Jesus has overtly challenged them and announced publicly that they are uh, they're guilty and they're, they're going to be, bring judgment upon themselves and Israel. They understood this. Matthew twenty-one forty-five and 46, which we studied, says that when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on, them, on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Now, this is the last week that Jesus is on the earth, but it's not the beginning of this plot. We're told, as we'll see in a minute, Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus cast out a demon and they claimed that he did it according to the power of Satan, that, that from that point on they began to conspire more overtly uh, to to do something with him and to kill him. So this has been going on for, that was at least six months to ten months earlier. So this conspiracy to kill Jesus has been going on. Now it's really ramping, uh, ramping itself up. Number 16, we learn the identity of these, these two groups that come to Jesus. The Pharisees who have, have received this plot... Send, uh, "...send to him their disciples with the Herodians." Now, I just want to stop there before we get into what they say. But they, they ha- have these groups. Now, why do they send their disciples? Well, I think they send their disciples because they've got more prestige on the line, and they've already been hammered by Jesus a couple of times, and so this way the leading Pharisees can save a little face... But they're, they want to send their own students, their own disciples to be part of this Q&A. And then there is another group that they're associated with, the Herodians. Now this is really um, an odd collection here because there are probably no, uh, no two groups that are more disparate and more at odds with each other uh, than the Pharisees and the Herodians. And I think it's important because of what they're trying to do that both groups are there to witness what Jesus is going to say, because they're going to set a trap for him, and he's either going to go one way, which is it would be in favor of the Herodians and then the Pharisees have him, or he's going to go the other way, and that will be in favor of the Pharisees, and then the Herodians will have him. and we'll get into that um, that in just just a minute. Now, who are these Herodians? Well, first of all, as I've indicated already, under normal circumstances, they were polar opposites. I mean, this is sort of like um, like putting Ted Cruz followers and Hillary's followers together and saying, "You guys get along together and let's accomplish something." Uh, they they just have totally different ideologies, totally different worldviews. But what we're seeing is they do have a common enemy. Second thing that we see is that the Herodians were Jewish leaders who were supporters of the Herods and the Herodian dynasty remember Herod the Great is the Idumean who was the king for about 40 years he was heavily supported by Rome so the Herods are deeply in debt and involved with the Romans and they are very much in favor of uh, of the Roman government and Roman taxation and everything that the Romans are doing so they are secular and they are pro-Roman the Herodian are more of a political party than a religious group. They are mentioned three times, only three times in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we're told, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Now, what's that talking about? That's in Mark 3, so anybody who can count can pretty much figure out that's pretty early in the Gospel of Mark, and we're in, we're seeing this, this joint conspiracy going on here, and it's the last week of Christ's life, so they can't be talking about the same thing. But if you take a look at the context of Mark 3, Mark loads this conflict up somewhat earlier in his narrative than Matthew did, but this is the this is the same incident where the pharisees are confronted by jesus that he's cast out the uh, cast out a demon and they accuse him of casting the demon out by the power of, of Beelzebub, which is sort of a negative term that they have for for Satan. Uh, it's described in Matthew, in Matthew twelve nine through 14, uh, immediately after Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. It's, a, it's the same episode. He heals a man with a withered hand, then he casts out a, a demon. And in Matthew chapter um, 16, we have on this slide... Well, I didn't get it on the slide. Okay, so we have it. This particular episode uh, comes up, and in Matthew Matthew twelve uh, and Matthew uh, excuse me Matthew twelve and Mark three are the the, the same uh, situation, and we see that the Pharisees are plotting with the Herodians. In um, another chapter, we're going to see a different organization. But this is the turning point. Now, this brings up an interesting, an interesting situation and an interesting scenario. Uh, today, we see something similar. You know, we have the saying that, that that politics makes for strange bedfellows. And if you've been watching, if you've been alert to what's been going on in the culture as a whole over the last uh, ten to um, fifteen years since nine eleven, immediately after nine eleven there was a lot of um, positive things that were be- beginning to be understood and beginning to be said uh, at a at a public level across the country in relation to how jihad and violence was an outgrowth of a basic core islamic theology and that lasted for maybe a year and it didn't take us long before the progressives began to uh, water that down a little bit. Uh, even um, uh, President George, uh, George W. Bush made statements almost immediately after 9-11 that Islam was a religion of peace. And starting with that narrative, that fallacious fantasy that Islam is a religion of peace, we began to see the narrative change until somewhere around Around seven or eight years ago, we began to think that that nothing was really going on that was the result of Islamic terrorism, and we got a president who's got uh, who's clearly brought up in a in an Islamic background and who never has anything negative to say about Islam, but he refuses, and many on the left, many of the progressives. Refuse to say anything about Islam and connect it to terrorism. And that's even recognized by most of the conservative press, but of course, uh, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, CBS, CB, CNN, and all the progressive, um, news organizations that are in the tank, uh, for the Democrats refuse to use the same, th- use that language at all. And in fact, what we're seeing is that those people, Tend to be more, more antagonistic to Christians. In fact, they're more concerned sometimes that there's going to be some sort of right wing Christian terrorism than Islamic terrorism. This last week it was reported that a newspaper in Tennessee refused to print an ad in their classified ads for a Christian bookstore that was closing down. They were just saying, you know, we're going out of business, we're selling all the books, all the tables, everything that we have, everything has to go. And the name of the, the establishment was something Christian, Christian bookstore. And the Sunday that came around and that ad was supposed to appear in the paper... And it wasn't there. So they called the paper and they were told, well, we couldn't print the ad because there was an offensive word in there. They said, really? What was the offensive word? And they were told the offensive word was Christian. We can't print an ad that has such a horrible offensive word in it. Well, the owners of the Christian bookstore decided to tell this story on their Facebook page. And starting on that next day, on that Monday, the newspaper began to get flooded with uh, phone calls. and, And they were immediately calling the people back and apologizing and saying, oh, it was a technical error. You know... Typical progressives, let's do something that violates the Constitution and then let's lie about it. That's their modus operandi. Republicans do that too, by the way. But, but we see it more blatantly on the left. And so we're living, living in this, this environment that is, that is more and more hostile to Christianity, and it comes from the progressive left. Well, about two or three weeks ago, I was talking to a uh, businesswoman, uh, acquaintance of mine, and she was telling me that uh, about a year ago, now what happened just a little bit over a year ago, one year and one month ago, anybody remember? There was a Supreme Court decision, Supreme Court decision, validated same-sex marriage, so that's the context. So just after that, a week or two after that, she's over here at Top Gun Range, and she is uh, practicing her handgun skills. And she noticed that not only is she the only woman lined up in, in all of the bays over there and all of the lanes that are shooting, but she's the only white woman. And everyone else is a young 20 to 25-year-old Muslim male. Now, that ought to sort of get your antenna wiggling just a little bit. But she was listening to their conversations. And she came back and she said, She said, Robbie, they hate homosexuals more than they hate Jews or Christians. She said, I tell all my liberal friends what I heard and what I saw, and they don't believe me. They don't want to believe me. It doesn't fit the progressive narrative. So they they just want to turn a, turn a blind eye to it, and, and what we see is that the progressives seem to be uh, coddling up to the uh, Muslims more and more, despite the fact that that all of the liberal values that progressives hold too dearly, such as women's rights and the right to abortion and and uh, uh, homosexual marriage and LGBT rights, and all the rights and freedoms that we hold dear in a liberal democracy, um, those are proscribed by Muslims. They hate them. They, if you're a Muslim, you are committed by your faith to Sharia law. You cannot hold. You cannot say, "I pledge allegiance to the Constitution," because the Constitution's in conflict with Sharia law. It's one or the other. Legitimately, no practicing Muslim can uh, be a United States citizen. It's a violation of the Constitution because they hold to a law system, Sharia law, that is uh, in direct violation uh, of the Constitution. But you see, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And the enemy of progressives are evangelical, Bible-believing Christians because we hold to an eternal, infinite value system that is directly at odds with the fundamental beliefs and worldview that lies behind progressivism. And if you study a history of progressivism, this goes back into the into the late nineteenth century and into the writings of Karl Marx, and as and it's basically a Marxist-Leninist uh, philosophy. And so, uh, this is what's going on. And remember, in the broader scope of conflict human history is the out, is part of the overall cosmic conflict between Satan and the fallen angels and the angels of God. And so in this world, as Satan seeking to dominate the world system and to destroy any system that allows for the freedom of Bible teaching and the freedom of the proclamation of the gospel is something that he's going to be against. And progressivism and Marxism are just one of numerous ideologies that is a brainchild of, of Lucifer, the fallen angel known as Satan. And because the enemy of, of Satan are Christians, the enemy of those who hold to his ideologies, whether it's Islam, Buddhism, uh Shintoism, uh, any other kind of transcendental New Age religion, or, or Marxism. If you hold to those ideas, then you are at odds with Christianity. So what we have is, is uh, one world system, Islam, getting in bed with another world system, which is uh, political progressivism, in order to attack Christianity. That's the same thing we have here. We have the political... Uh, the political arm, the Herodians, who want to get in bed with the religious uh, Pharisees, and even though one 's conservative and one 's not they, they, one thing they have in common is they both see Jesus as the problem and they they want to trap him and they want to destroy him and so that 's what's what 's happening here now in One other example of of the use of Herodians in the uh, Gospel of Mark, Mark 8.15, Jesus charged them in talking to the disciples, says, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In Matthew 16.6, talking about the same situation as he's talking to his disciples, he said, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So somebody might say, well, which is it? You have the leaven of Herod mentioned in Mark 8.15, and the Pharisees and Sadducees instead of the Pharisees and Herod in in Matthew 16.6. Now, you might ask what the difference is, and it seems to be a contradiction, did you ask that? Oh, I heard you do that. You're going to regret it. Um, Matthew focuses more on religious parties that are in opposition to Jesus, and Mark fo- focuses more on the political opposition uh, to Jesus and brings that out. And the Herodians were more of a political party than a religious party. Some have suggested that the reason you have this uh, difference between the two verses is that many of the Sadducees were also uh, Boethusians. There's a new word for you this morning. That's spelled B-O-E-T-H-U-S-I-A-N-S, Boethusians. Now, the two were indistinguishable theologically. So, that that means they didn't really believe in anything beyond the Pentateuch, they didn't believe in the existence of angels, they didn't believe in the existence of resurrection from the dead. Those were the basic components. The Sadducees were the religious liberals, the Pharisees were the religious conservatives. So the, the Sadducees, though, were pretty much composed of two political groups that held to the same theology. The Boethusians supported the house of Herod, so those were primarily the Herodians. They wanted Herod uh, Herod Antipas and the other Herods, Herod Phil- Philip, to stay in power. They were pro-Rome and pro-Roman power. Whereas the other Sadducees supported the Hasmonean dynasty, these were the priests that had been, a uh, priestly family that had come into power during the intertestamental period, uh, with the revolt of the Maccabees against the, uh, uh against the Greek, the, the Greek rulers and the Antiochians so that would be the basic difference Uh, the the Pharisees the religious conservatives they're looking for some sort of cataclysmic political messianic kingdom that's going to come in and throw off Roman rule so the Herodians and the Boethusians are looking to preserve Roman rule through the uh, through the Herodians, and so that that 's why you have the, so in in these two verses mark and in matthew that 's not really a contradiction since the Herodians were part or a subset of the Sadducees so the question that they 're going to ask him the trap that they set is they say, tell us therefore, what do you think now Oh, before we get to that verse, let me go to the end of the previous verse. And, and I want to say this in a way where it sort of drips with, with irony and sarcasm because they don't believe this. They're just trying to set Jesus up with flattery. And they say, oh, teacher. So they're going to flatter Him by calling Him teacher, acting as if somehow they, they listen, uh, believe He's a teacher. He says, we know that you're true no they don 't they don 't believe he 's true at all they think that he 's an enemy of the state, so we know that you 're true and you teach the way of God in truth yeah right now they 're not interested in the truth you know typical uh, a, a typical approach to try to use flattery to turn someone and um, and to get their ego involved, but that doesn 't work with jesus he 's not egotistical because he 's not a sinner so they then say, you don't care about anyone. In other words, you don't care about people's opinions. You are impartial. You don't regard the person or the face of man. That's what they're trying to get. You, you think objectively, Jesus. So they're, they're buttering him up in order to uh, set the trap, and, bait, and they're baiting the trap. So now, verse 20, 22, 17, "...tell us, therefore, what do you think?" You know, we know you're true, Jesus, so tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And here's the trap. If the, the Pharisees resented having to pay taxes to Caesar, they're nationalists. Now, they weren't as radical as the zealots. The zealots just wanted to foment a revolution and fight off Rome. The Pharisees won't go quite that far, but they're nationalists. They don't want a dime of their money going to support uh, to support Rome so the Pharisees are on that end and they, and it see if Jesus says well it's not lawful then that's in favor of the Pharisees but then that would put Jesus in a trap because that would put him in disfavor with the Romans and so now Jesus is in trouble the Herodians on the other hand because they support Herod's family and they're supporters of the status quo and the Romans that if Jesus says that it is lawful then they're going to be happy, but that's going to anger the conservatives and the nationalists and the Pharisees and the zealots and most people who are suffering under this onerous taxation uh, from the Romans. Now, some of you think that we live in an onerous taxation system in this country, and compared to what it was 50 or 60 years ago, it's rather onerous, but it was much worse under the Roman Empire. In fact, the further you were away from Rome, the heavier the taxes, and if you're in these outlying uh, countries and regions like in Judea, you're bear- bearing the heaviest tax burden. And you not only had the temple tax, which was required by the Mosaic law, uh, but you also had to pay this head tax or this this, this poll tax uh and you also had to pay a number of other taxes things that would be comparable to our sales tax uh taxes if you if you were if you had a caravan and you were going from uh let's say Beersheba to Dan then every time you got on a road you'd have to pay a tax every time you crossed a bridge you'd have to pay a tax every time you went through a village or a town you'd have to pay a tax and you'd have to pay numerous other commercial taxes related to that so that it is estimated that uh, uh, an item would quadruple or quintuple its cost just because of all of these various taxes. So something that cost a dollar would end up costing. Uh, five or six dollars by the time they got through paying all the taxes and that of course makes it almost impossible to make money makes it hard for people to purchase anything that they need because everything is terribly expensive because of the taxes and we have the same kind of thing today we have uh, fortunately in the great state of texas we don't have a sales i mean i don't have a, tech, a texas state tax some people say, well, you have an onerous sales tax. Trust me, you go to Connecticut or Massachusetts, it's a sales tax that's marginally less than, um, than what we have for a, for a sales tax in Texas. And then they have a bad uh, state income tax. So you have uh, federal, state uh, taxes. You have local uh, sales taxes that can get bad, but you, then you have all of those fees if you want to do anything. If you want to have a church here, you've got to pay for a certificate of occupancy, you've got to do all of these other things, um, that, that are basically taxes under the guise of fees. So it's estimated that the average American that is paying taxes, um, paying income taxes as a homeowner and paying property taxes, probably paying somewhere between 30 and 35 percent of his income, depending on where you are, uh, in taxes. So we're, we're paying a lot of taxes. But let me see, under the Old Testament Mosaic Law, there was a 10 percent tithe, then there was a second 10 percent tithe, then there was a ter- third tithe that was every third year. So that runs out to be about 23 percent or 24 percent, depending on how you how you figure it out. So And then under the Mosaic Law, then you would have your taxes to, to the Caesar on top of that. So you didn't have a whole lot of paycheck left over at the end of the second day. And you still had about 28 more to go before you were at the end of the month. So it was really difficult to live and to make a living. So uh, they're asking this question, and it's interesting the language they use. They say, tell us... What do you think, is it lawful to pay taxes? And this word for pay taxes is the word on the on the left, Didomi. Is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar or not? What's interesting is in verse 21 when Jesus answers and he says, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, he doesn't use the same language. He changes to the word apodidomi, which means to give back. It's the idea, this is his, give it back to him. So he doesn't walk into their trap. He doesn't let them set the vocabulary. He's very thoughtful about his uh, about his particular answer. Now, uh, as we look at the various uh, situation uh, taxes in Rome, they had two basic two other basic taxes: either the property tax or a poll tax, which was called the tributum uh, capitus or head tax. And since Judea was a, an imperial province after 6 A.D., all of the taxes were paid directly into the imperial treasury. That's again something that really irritated uh, ir- irritated the um, the Pharisees. And uh, Herod Antipas and his brother Philip, who governed the rest of uh, Palestine and the, uh, pa- the Palestinian territory to the north, the area going up towards uh, north of Samaria and into the Galilee. Uh, also, would have paid a tribute to Caesar, just as their father Herod the Great did. So there was this huge tax. Uh, they also had water taxes and meat taxes and salt taxes and house taxes and every if it moved, it was taxed, and if it doesn't, it was taxed. So they collected everything. Now that's not uh, just as a little warning. I did a little research on this yesterday. Uh, help us understand something about our taxes. We have to pay off the national debt. The national debt as of June second, two thousand sixteen, is nineteen trillion two hundred twenty nine dollars. billion, $279 million, and $536,522. Let's just round that off to $19.2 trillion. Now that boils down to $59,409 for every person living in the U.S., taxpayer or not. That's a $154,344 obligation for every household. That's 105% of U.S. gross domestic product. That means it's twice what this country produces to make money in a year. Problem with that is that countries that get over indebted over 90% of their domestic product uh, basically are looking forward to recessionary uh, economics, unemployment, and the collapse of their economy historically. But that's if you're just looking at the national debt. I'm looking at a website that's called uh, justfacts.com. And so they go a step further, and they say that publicly traded companies are legally required to account not only for the explicit debt, but they're required to account for the implicit future obligations, such as employee pensions and retirement benefits. So the federal budget and the deficit just relates to the explicit uh, debt that we have, but if we factor in the $8.3 trillion in liabilities uh, that are part of federal employee retirement benefits, accounts payable, and environmental liabilities, we have a greater debt. If we factor in the $26.7 trillion in obligations for current Social Security participants uh, and also factoring in projected uh, payroll and benefit taxes, uh, we have an even greater debt And if we factor in, again, the $28.5 trillion in obligations for current Medicare participants above and beyond projected revenues and benefit taxes, then we have an even greater debt. The bottom line is that there's actually, if we factor in all of the obligations and liabilities that the federal government has, we have a $76.4 trillion shortfall. I can't even think that big. $76.5 $76.5 trillion, just about. And that's $273,284 for every person living in the U.S. $613,531 for every household in the U.S. Well, let's just stop there. That's almost impossible to ever pay that off. That means that we are on a downhill slide. Now, some people think, oh, let's tax the rich. Well, if you took all the income that all the rich... You know that one percent, that um, Wall Street. What was that called? Um, you know the the, the, the uh, group that it was attacking Wall Street and having the sit-ins a few years ago. Wall, what? Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street that's right. Thank you. That um, you know they're ta- worried about the one percent. Well, if you take everything that the one percent owns, that's that's not even going to pay off the nineteen trillion. But it's going to destroy the productivity of the country. You don't have productivity by overtaxing people. In fact, the more you tax people, the less they're able to invest money and make money. And the only way that you're going to grow the economy in order to have the income, in order to pay off the debt, is to reduce taxes. But, But that's not how progressives think. They just want all the money to go to Washington and dole it out. Well, we see how the cost of living and and, and the quality of life in places like Ukraine and Belarus and and China and and Russia has, has developed over this. It all comes down, though, to taxes. But Jesus says, even if your taxes are onerous, and they were incredibly onerous under Rome, you need to pay taxes. And look how he handles this. He perceived their wickedness. He saw that they were evil, and he said, "Why do you test me, you hypocrites?" The word there for wickedness is paneria, meaning evil. It's the same word he used to describe uh, the evil vine dressers back in Matthew twenty-one forty-one, and he called them hypocrites. It was, it, hypocrite's a term that comes out of, the, out of uh, uh, drama. It's putting on a mask when you come out in a play. The mask covers up who you really are, and you're trying to project another identity, and that's the idea. They're trying to act like they're, they're genuine and talking to Jesus, but they're not. So he says, well, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And here we have a picture of the uh, coin here. And he says, whose image and description is this? Here we go. And this is what it says. Uh, On one side, it has Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So on one side, it's claiming that, that um, uh, that Caesar is God. And on the other side, it says he's the high priest, Pontiff Maxim. Uh, that's, if you come from a Catholic background, you'll recognize that. That's the title for the Pope. He's the high priest. So this is the, uh, the coin. And so Jesus it looks at that, and, and right away he's alluding to a basic problem that they've got. And that is that, that it violates the second commandment to make an image of God or make an image of anything. And so that's why the Pharisees won't pay it is it's paid with a coin that has a blasphemous image on it. But Jesus says, whose image is it? Well, it's Caesar's. So he says, Render, opoditome, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He's making a clear case that there is a sphere of authority in the secular government. That has certain rights and privileges, and you are under that authority, and therefore you pay for the cost. That's the price of doing business and living in the empire, even if it's onerous. He says, pay the tax. And render under God the things that are God's. The other thing that he's making a point here is that Caesar's not God. The coin claims that he's God, but he's not God. So render under Caesar what's his, but God is his. There's a higher authority, and that is the service of God. And so when they heard these words, they marveled, and they left him, and they went their way. So he foils this first trap, sidesteps it, and gets ready for the next one. Now what I want to do is come back and look at this in a little this topic in a little broader sense next time. For we have passages like Romans thirteen, six and seven. Where Paul says, for because of this, that is what he has said earlier in the passage, that every soul is supposed to be subject to governing authorities. So because of this, you also pay taxes. For they, that is the government, are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Therefore, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to due customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And so we'll come back next time and develop this a little bit more because, as I said in the introduction, this is one of the three key passages in the New Testament that talk about the role and authority of government and the believer's relationship to the authority of government. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to think through this situation and talk about these things because they do impact are uh, thinking about current events and understanding what your word says about economics, what your word says about politics, what your word says about, about how you structured society uh, so that certain absolutes should not be violated. Father, ultimately we realize a basic problem everyone faces is not a problem of government or politics, it's a problem of sin, and that every human being is born a sinner, uh, spiritually dead, Uh, incapable of saving themselves. But you, in your grace and your goodness, provided a Savior for us, a solution for us, as you sent the eternal second person of the Trinity to die on the cross for our sins. He entered into human history, lived among us, and yet he was rejected, he was crucified, and that fulfilled your plan. And in that crucifixion, he paid for our sins. So that salvation is not based on something we do, it's not based on some bargain we make with you to clean up our lives. It's based on the fact that Jesus Christ died for us and that He paid the penalty and that his sin, our sin was imputed to Him. And if we trust in Him, His righteousness is given to us so that we are saved not by our goodness, but by His perfect righteousness. And we pray that if anyone is listening to this, if they've never trusted in Jesus as Savior, they would do that right now. They would believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us that we need to understand how your word applies to every area of thinking in our lives, not just spiritual and moral things, but how it relates to politics and economics how it relates to science, how it relates to every field of ethics and morality, how it relates to uh, learning in every field of human endeavor. Father, we pray that we might be willing to take up the challenge Jesus lays down so much, and that is to follow him, to be disciples, and to be willing to do what is necessary to grow to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.